Good morning. We're in 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16. And for the last two Sundays, we've been camped out in verse 14. So if you're in verse 14, 2 Kings 16, verse 14. And from this verse, we learn that where God puts someone or something is for his specific purpose. And we learn that in relation to Ahaz having the brazen altar moved and his own altar from Damascus in its place. And the question I think we ended with last week is, who is man to try to put something somewhere besides where God put it? Who's man to try to put someone somewhere besides where God put that person? You see that and and have since the 60s, maybe before then, when all of the liberation type of theology came out, and that's what it turned into. Equal rights here, equal rights there. And I don't think it's ever been about equal rights. I think it's been about something more sinister than that. But I'll tell you where God put us. He put himself first because he is the first. He created man. So at no time is God's creation equal to him or greater than him. And when Cain made his own religion, he put himself equal to God. Abel said, I'm coming by blood the way God said. And Abel said, hold on, I've got a better idea. It's not as messy. And then we have all the problems we have with man's religion from that point. So I'd like to continue expounding this truth by looking at two other verses. If you want to write these down, they're both found in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8. We're still talking about where God put something. He put the altar. He had man put the altar where he wanted it. Genesis 2, 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden... And there he put the man whom he had formed. God didn't put the garden in man. He put man in the garden. And when he put man in the garden, one thing we learn from that is that God had the sole authority to put mankind wherever he wants him. So he put man in the garden, not outside the garden. And the second verse from Genesis is one I'll use to emphasize this same truth. And it's Genesis 3.15, which we often, often return to. And in Genesis 3.15, during this great interrogation scene where God has before him the serpent who tempted Eve and Adam to sin, and Adam and Eve who had already sinned, God said, and I will put enmity between thee, he's talking to the serpent who represents the devil. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. So there was a certain place where God put enmity, and it was between two things, between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The word enmity in the Old Testament 
means hatred. And it's translated as the word hatred two times in the Old Testament if you use the King James translation. There is no room for acceptance of the things of Satan and his seed in the lives of those who are the seed of Christ. There's no room for acceptance of the things of Satan and his seed in the lives of those who are of the seed of Christ. In other words, Satan and the unbelievers have things, and Christ and the believers have things. We have things in him. And there's not a place in the lives of either one of those groups for what the other one has. Satan's crowd does not want the things of Christ. They want the things of this world. And the seed of Christ, the believers, are not supposed to want the things that belong to the seed of Satan. But because we have a fall, and our spiritual man does not, but because we have a fallen flesh and we live in that fallen flesh, that's where the rub is. That's where the problem is. That's where man, though he be a Christian, from time to time says, I don't want there to be enmity in this situation between the seed of the man, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. The Christ and those who, by extension, are in Him by faith, are the seed of the woman talked about in the Genesis text, and you may have studied that before in your creation to Christ or other evangelical uh, systematic teaching. But that enmity that was put there between those seeds doesn't mean we're supposed to walk around hating people who are of the seed of the serpent. We don't walk around with hatred because uh, just because they're not a Christian. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so that enmity or that hatred that God put there was for all things that flow from Satan. God's people aren't to love it. We're not to love those things and we're not to accept those things. And we're being asked. In fact, in some places, people are legally being required to accept certain things that God hates. That doesn't mean we have to accept them. That means that we may get in trouble if we don't depending on where we live and what the, the law of the land says. But because God put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between the holy and the unholy, then we are not to put that enmity anywhere else. God had man put that brazen altar to be seen first, to be encountered first, going into the tabernacle or into the temple. That was the first thing you passed. And by what happened on that brazen altar, access was given to everything else. To ignore what happened on that brazen altar and then to try to have access to all of the benefits that came after it is heresy. It's the religion of Cain, isn't it? Who didn't want to bring that blood offering. He wanted to, even though the altar wasn't uh, built and present and working in his day, that whole set of ordinances was not around in his day. The blood sacrifice was, and God's command was. 
And had that brazen altar been there in those days, Abel would have gone right to it and said, here, my offering goes on there. And Cain would have said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go around that. You, you have your religion, I have mine. I'm going to please God a different way. It's really cool, you know, there's not a lot of blood involved. I won't have to kill an animal. He totally missed the point, didn't he? We're not to try to, we don't move enmity from where God put it. And we're not supposed to try to reconcile holy things and unholy things by the use of compromise. And you know where compromise always lands you? It never does bring you closer to your position. It always takes you further away from your position. When a car salesman has a price in his mind, and you have a price in your mind, for that sale to be made, both of you have to move away from your original position and come to some sort of compromise. The car salesman wants it to be closer to his idea of the right price, and you want it to be closer to your idea of the right price. But you both have to move off of your positions. And if you ever notice in the lives of Christians in the, in the church, and more so as we see the day of Christ approaching, the compromise doesn't move closer to the church. The Lord's church... The commandments pertaining to the Lord's church have never moved. It's the people who have. It's the, the world's over here and it doesn't move. The people move to the world. There have always been two seeds. There have always been two systems ever since sin entered into the world. And so where God put enmity, it's like a dividing line for us as Christians. God's word tells us what's good and what's bad. There's a dividing line, and it's the, the dividing line of enmity, hatred, opposition. And when something is on the other side of enmity, we are not to try to take that thing and bring it on this side of enmity. Because God put enmity where he put it for a purpose. And a pastor or a teacher or anyone else for that matter who's a Christian who accepts sinful behavior from others in the name of love, has taken enmity and put it somewhere other than where God put it. Because God put enmity where? Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now with that in mind, what should there have been between the altar of Damascus and the brazen altar? There should have been enmity. In God's eyes, there was enmity between his altar and the altar of Damascus, the unholy altar from Damascus. But in King Ahaz's eyes, he replaced that enmity with diversity, equity, and inclusion, didn't he? You know what all that means, don't you? <laughs> there was room in his heart for another altar so he made room in God's temple courtyard for another altar and he put in doing that he put God somewhere or God's altar somewhere besides where God put it <clears throat> we love people but we are to hate their sinful ways don't ever love sin don't say you know but my grandmother does that, and I love her to the moon and back. 
And so I'm going to love what she does, even if it's wrong. Don't do that. Love your grandmother. Don't love what she does if it's sin. Love your children, but when they sin, we don't say, oh, that's okay. No, we take measures for good parents to keep it from happening again. There's enmity between sin and righteousness. And don't let the ungodly religious crowd turn you around with this either. God loved this world, and he sent his son to save sinners, not to save their sin. And there's a huge difference. He destroyed the works of the devil because there is enmity between those works of darkness and God's works of light. The only thing God wants to destroy is evil, and he will. Now look at verse 15 with me. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening meat offering and the king's burnt sacrifice and his meat offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meat offering and their drink offerings, And sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. And the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. So you notice there are two different altars mentioned here in this verse. The great altar and the brazen altar. Now which one do you think he's calling the great altar? The one from Damascus, right? So his perspective, his opinion about the brazen altar is that it is a lesser altar than his great altar from Damascus. Tells us a lot about him. Let's look at the first part of that verse where it says, And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest. Now let's stop right there. There's all kinds of problem. There are all kinds of problems with that. From whom did the Levites receive all of their commandments concerning the offerings and the altar and what was to be done there. Those commandments were received from God, given to Moses, and he gave them to Aaron. Now there were two other places in the Old Testament where I found that a king commanded the high priest to do something pertaining to the sanctuary. But both of those were good things. Not this. Not something sinful like Ahaz commanded Uriah to do. So the great altar is the altar of Damascus. In fact, I don't usually consult the Latin translation, but as you know, any language in the world into which the Bible is translated, if it's a good translation, it will be translated from the original texts. Or the original words. You don't have the actual paper or parchment. But the, the original languages. So if I want something translated in, into Japanese, then I want that Japanese translator to consult the original languages. If I want it translated into Spanish, same thing. We don't send people a King James Bible and say, here, translate this into your language. That's how you get bad translations right there. So the Levites received... These commandments, and I I didn't find anywhere else in the Old Testament where 
a priest was given a commandment by the king to do something bad concerning the altar. So it appears this is a standalone problem here, at least from what we have recorded in God's Word. But the Latin translation uses the word super in it. Now, it's in Latin, but it's where we get the word super from, which might help us understand the Hebrew word for great just a little bit more. Most translations use the word great when it comes to this altar. So think of it as in Ahaz's mind, it's a super altar. Now, that's just an altar, but this is a super altar, maybe a mega altar, like a mega church versus a little church. But what we notice here is that Ahaz did not say the brazen altar. That's how we know it was the altar from Damascus. Remember that brazen altar was rendered obsolete. It is moved out of the way to the north of the altar of Damascus, now known as the great altar. Back in the text, verse 15, it says, Upon the great altar... Burn the morning burnt offering and the evening meat offering. Now, this is a command from Ahaz, the king, to Uriah, the priest. Are we surprised here? (laughs) First, the altar of Damascus was put before the brazen altar. Then the brazen altar was moved to the north, where it might still be used to burn offerings. But now it's not even being used by the king at all. He sold himself completely out to the great altar. And we could see it coming, couldn't we? The moment he went to Syria and said, hey, and he beheld that altar of Damascus. The moment he did that, we could see the rest of this happening to where that would replace the brazen altar. And we looked at it in painstaking detail. We took it apart or saw how the Bible reveals it step by step by step. Notice the words the king used to describe the offerings that he wanted here. Especially the first two. The morning offering and the evening burnt offering. Now listen to what God commanded concerning the morning burnt offering. It's found in Leviticus chapter 6 verses 8 through 13. Leviticus 6 verses 8 through 13 and I'll read that if you just want to write it down. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night unto the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen breeches shall he put on his flesh. And take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed with the burnt offering on the altar, And he shall put them beside the altar. And he shall put off his garments and put on other garments and carry forth the ashes without the camp unto a clean place. And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it. And he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. So first of all, From that text, the fire was supposed to be on the altar the Lord commanded Moses to build, not anywhere else. Secondly, the fire on that altar was never supposed to go out. 
Thirdly, the priest had to put on special garments, special clothes to carry the ashes out and put on other special clothes. This was a big deal. And then lay the burnt offering upon that altar, not upon another altar. So Ahaz basically attempted to rewrite God's instructions from Leviticus chapter 6. That's what he did. In fact, if he had printed his version, it would go something like this. And King Ahaz shall replace the old tarnished brazen altar with a brand new one, built according to the design used by an enemy nation. Ahaz shall not trouble himself nor his priest to keep a fire burning always upon the new altar, seeing it would waste too much wood. And according to his own desire, Ahaz shall offer the morning and evening burnt offerings upon his new super altar, hoping God will understand. He may as well have put that in writing because that's what he did. We find the evening offering in several places in the Old Testament, one of which is in Numbers chapter 28, verses 3 through 4. We looked at the morning offering. Let's look at the evening offering. Numbers 28, verses 3 through 4, where God tells Moses, And thou shalt say unto them, This is the offering made by fire, which ye shall offer unto the Lord. Two lambs of the first year, without spot, day by day, for a continual burnt offering. The one lamb shalt thou offer in the morning, and the other lamb shalt thou offer at even. That's the King James way of saying evening, in the evening. Now, although Ahaz replaced the brazen altar with a new one, did you notice that he still thought it was important to offer a morning and an evening sacrifice? Where did he get this idea from? Yeah, well, just like the practice of all the world's religions that use any kind of sacrifice, he got the idea from God. So if you hear about a, a tribe or a people group somewhere and that they're slaying goats and cows and doing all sorts of dances around it and offering it up and pouring the blood out and drinking it and all of that, you may say, what is wrong with these people? Hey, they did what King Ahaz did. They took something that God had made as a perfect design to demonstrate the necessity for a sacrifice for people to be accepted by him. He gave a pattern. That pattern was not what the world's religions practice, even though they may have copied and pasted these ordinances and sacrifices into their own religion. And so... It was God, not man, who made the first blood sacrifice. So the blood sacrifice itself is not some new thing the heathens came up with in some dark place in the jungle. God made the first blood sacrifice. When he killed those innocent animals and clothed Adam and Eve with their skins, picturing the righteous robe of Christ that we would put on spiritually speaking. So let's look at what Ahaz's actions have to do with religion today. 
And we've learned that the lamb on the altar represents Jesus. I think that's a basic truth that, that you're all comfortable with if you're coming in here. And that the altar represents the cross. A sacrifice took place on the altar. A sacrifice took place on the cross. So what Ahaz has done spiritually is taken the cross out of the picture. And he moved it over here to the north. He took the cross out of the picture. He left Jesus in the picture because he left the, the morning and evening sacrifice. Those lambs that are without spot or blemish, those represent Christ, whom John the Baptist said was the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And Jesus was spotless, without blemish. And so the what Ahaz has done is spiritually take the cross out of the picture, but he left Jesus in there. The problem is it's another Jesus. It's another Jesus, one who was sacrificed on the altar of man's imagination, not on the cross. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 through 5, Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. It's 2 Corinthians 11, verses 4 through 5. He wrote, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. What did God put between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman? He put enmity. And in this verse, the serpent beguiled Eve through subtlety. In other words, he said, hey, don't worry about what God says. I've got a better idea. Satan tried to rearrange enmity, and Eve said, you know what? That tree does look good, and uh, it could make one wise. Because the brazen altar and the lamb upon it represented Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross, then the new altar and the lamb upon it Represented another Jesus. You remember that Jesus' name came from two Hebrew words, Jehovah and Oshea. Joshua, you remember Joshua in the Old Testament? His birth name was Oshea, and then it was Jehoshua, and then Joshua. So, Joshua, in fact, in the New Testament, there's a verse that talks about Jesus from the Old Testament. It's speaking of Joshua, the man. But Jehovah is the self-existing one. That is, God is and has always been. He wasn't a created being. His essence, his attributes are always the same. They've never changed. We can't wrap our minds around that. But that's, what, that's who God is. And then Oshea... Joshua's birth name was uh, means savior. So you have 
in the name Jesus, Jehovah O'Shea, the self-existing one who saves. Okay, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is not just a name. Though there were others named Jesus, there are people who have named their children Jesus. We're not talking as much about the name as what that name means. The self-existing one who saves. So what does it tell you about Jesus? He's the self-existing one. He is God who saves. And the Jesus represented by the super altar of Damascus was neither self-existing nor could he save. From the Jehovah's Witnesses statement of faith, I want you to listen to what it says. I took this right off of their website. Quote, this is from the Jehovah's Witness statement of faith. So don't cut and paste this part of my message if you're somebody online looking for a fault, okay? <laughs> it says, Jesus we follow the teachings and example of Jesus Christ and honor him as our Savior and as the Son of God. Thus we are Christians. Okay, we're good so far. We're amening right there. However, we have learned from the Bible, again, this is the Jehovah's Witness statement of faith. We have learned from the Bible that Jesus is not Almighty God and that there is no scriptural basis for the Trinity doctrine. And they quote John chapter 14, verse 28 where Jesus said, for my father is greater than I. And they take it out of context. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, by their own statement of faith, claim that Jesus is not God and that there is no Trinity, meaning the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the, the concept is. And yet in John chapter 14, the very chapter that they used to discredit Jesus as God. In verse 9 says, Jesus said to Philip, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. In John chapter 1 verses 10 through 12, John 1 verses 10 through 12, the apostle John speaking of Jesus said, he was in the world, and the world was made by him. So the one who was in the world, the one whom man beheld, as he walked the earth among his fellow man, was the same one who made the world. That's God. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him to them gave he the power to become the sons of God even to them that believed on his name God the son made the world God the father made the world God the spirit made the world if you study your bible you'll find that all three persons in the godhead were active in the creation in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth there you go there's God the father the spirit of God Moved across the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. There's God the Spirit in the creation. And then this text that I just read you from John chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. That same God the Son came into the world, but he wasn't received by his own people. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 
through 9, Colossians 2, verses 8 through 9. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, that's the Trinity, bodily. I don't know how much more clearly you can make the case that Jesus is God the Son, not just the Son of God. I could spend a whole year showing and preaching from God's Word that Jesus is God the Son and the Son of God at once. And because the Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus was not and is not Almighty God, then they would have to believe he was born of the seed of Adam. Because if he's not God, he had to be born of the seed of Adam. And not of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Jesus they wrote about in their statement of faith, that's another Jesus. They believe in another Jesus. They may tell you, oh, no, 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 we believe in the same one you do. So if you ever have the occasion to witness to a Jehovah Witness, and I hope you do sometime, ask them to tell you who Jesus is. That cut to the chase. Get away from, well, we're, you know, we use the Bible, so do we. The devil knows the Bible, and he knows how to lead people astray from it rather than explain it to them. They say, oh, we believe in God. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Outstanding. Tell me about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus God? That's the question you need to ask them. And if they tell you, oh, yes, then they're lying. They're betraying their own religion, their own statement of faith. If they say, no, he's not, then there you go. Then who is this Jesus? He is another Jesus beside the one declared by the Bible. Don't argue. Just ask the question. Even though that group and many others like them will believe he died on the cross, they deny his deity. They're bringing their own offering and their own altar, and they can never be saved by either one. Look back in your text as Ahaz continues telling Uriah what he wants put on the Damascus altar. He said, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meat offering and their drink offerings. So not only does he want the evening and the morning sacrifice or offerings put on there and his own, but he wants those of all the people put on there as well. So not only did Ahaz pollute God's temple, but he caused the people of the land to do so as well. Now, this is what you would call a government-controlled religion. This is a state religion if I've ever seen one. When Elizabeth I became the Queen of England in 1558, the Independent Church of England was reestablished or established. The Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles became the standards for liturgy and for doctrine. In 1562, King Charles I commissioned the reprinting of those 39 articles. 
Now, listen to who's doing all the telling what to do. It's the king and the queen. But I want you to listen to a portion of the introduction of those 39 articles. This would be like the, the preamble, just a part of it. And here's what it says. This is from King Charles himself. Quote, being by God's ordinance according to our just title. Now, let me just stop. The royalty uses we and our. They use plural to refer to themselves. So it's a little different, but that's how that was. According to our just title, defender of the faith and the supreme governor of the church. There's a problem right there, isn't it? That the king said, I'm the supreme governor of the church. With in these our dominions, we hold it most agreeable to this our kingly office and our own religious zeal to conserve and maintain the church committed to our charge in unity of true religion and in the bond of peace and not to suffer unnecessary disputations, altercations, or questions to be raised. How about that? You can't question the articles of the faith under that church which may nourish faction both in the church and the commonwealth. They don't want any church splits. We have therefore upon mature deliberation and with the advice of so many of our bishops as might conveniently be called together, thought fit to make this declaration following, that the articles of the Church of England which have been allowed and authorized heretofore and which our clergy, clergy generally have subscribed unto do contain the true doctrine of the Church of England agreeable to God's word, which we do therefore ratify and confirm, requiring all our loving subjects to continue in the uniform profession there. There's your state religion right there. The king said, I'm in charge. Here's what you're going to believe, and we're going to require all of my subjects to adhere to these articles. And prohibiting the least difference from said articles, which to that end we commend to be new printed, and this our declaration to be republished therewith, that we are the supreme governor of the Church of England, and that if any difference arise about the external policy concerning the injunctions, canons, and other constitutions whatsoever thereto belonging, the clergy and their convocation is to order and settle them having first obtained leave under our broad seal to do so. So if there is a question in the church, a difference, the clergy, as he calls them, the priests, can settle it, but they have to have the king's approval for it to be the final answer. And then it goes on. Now our current expression of the English language is not as beautiful and it also doesn't have as many commas in what seems to be an inexhaustible sentence. I had to take several breaths to finish one sentence. And so I uh, don't covet their writing other than it is a beautiful rendition of the language. But out of all that, we saw that the king took it upon himself to conserve and maintain the church, to disallow any factions or disagreements and to require all of his subjects to obey those articles and make sure none of it was contrary to the law of the land. And anyone who disagreed with those articles was prohibited from making it known. There is, in fact, in those articles, one that concerns how to baptize infants, which we don't do. It's not in the Scripture. And what if, those, what if one of those church members would have said, Hey, Hold on a minute. Uh, infants should not be baptized. That's not to be done until after one has become a Christian. 
Well, that person would have been disciplined or excommunicated from the Church of England. Ahaz was the administrator of the Church of the Altar of Damascus. And he led the people to obey its teachings by bringing their sacrifices and putting them upon that newly constructed altar. Now let's suppose one of those Jews under his rule would have said, I'm not bringing my lamb to your altar. I want him to be offered upon the brazen altar. Ahaz probably would have said something like, well, everyone else is bringing their lambs to to this altar. So just get behind them. Just get in line and do as you're told. You know what appeals to a lot of people about mega churches? It's the fact that everyone else goes there. (laughs) That's true. That may even be true of churches in small towns that happen to be the biggest church. You know, the First Baptist or the First Methodist or whatever their title is, that people go to church because that's where everybody else goes. That's the wrong reason to go. And many of those, I'm not going to say all, but many of those mega churches attract people with worldly entertainment. I'm going to tell you one that didn't, and that was Bellevue Baptist Church where Adrian Rogers was the pastor. He had, there were 10,000 members when he went there, and it doubled, and probably even more than that. And uh, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was conservative, politically, uh, spiritually, He wasn't a compromiser at all. So not every large church is built upon the foundation of an altar of Damascus. We won't be clear about that. But many are. Many of these megachurches are. And people are attracted to those churches with worldly entertainment, games, coffee bars, all sorts of activities. And they're great places to socialize Make new friends, especially if you're new to the area. I get on the Rockwallian, which is a group of people who are from the Rockwall area, and they put all kinds of stuff on there. You know, where can I get my car detailed, and uh, what's the best school to send my child to? Well, occasionally someone will say, I'm new to the area, and I'm looking for a church. What do you recommend? And the responses people give them are very telling. They're the same kinds of responses you would expect from worldly churchgoers. And that is, oh, come to our church. You know, we have this and this and this going on. But what you don't see very often is someone say, if you want to learn the Bible, come to our church. You'll learn the Bible. Because that's all we have to offer here. But that is all we need. That's a full-time job trying to learn the Bible, isn't it? And teach it and encourage one another to to live by it. And you compare that with the people to whom we minister online, some of whom are members of this church just like I am, but they live hundreds of miles from here, maybe even thousands. They refuse to drive to the nearest, coolest megachurch in their city or to the biggest Baptist church in their town, the one where everyone else goes, they'd rather miss out on all that in-person social fellowship and worship with like-minded believers online. Their lamb died on a cross, and they want to be taught about him. 
They want to learn his word and know more about the Bible than they did yesterday. They want the eternal bread of life rather than the empty food that this world and most of its churches offer. And I'm sure thankful for them. Thankful for you, but you're already here. They wish they could be. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the people that you've given this church, that you've added both here and our online members. We're thankful for the visitors who've come in person and who've also taken the time out of their day to tune in and listen to the teaching of your word. And Father, we don't want to have the worldly attractions that draw people to religious assemblies on Sundays and we just want to be faithful teaching your word. And we know the devil is fighting us at every moment and in every way to keep us from doing that. So we're trusting you today that by your grace, by the teaching of the Holy Spirit to the hearts of the believers and even to the unbeliever who is looking for the truth. We pray that you would minister to each one, that you would draw us closer to you and to one another in the bonds of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.